chapter 3, John chapter 3. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we are currently going through studies in the life of Christ. And this morning, we're on our second study about the encounters of Christ. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, encountered a lot of people. And uh, it's interesting to see those encounters, uh, what kind of encounters they were, uh, the type of people he met with, and the things that he said to them, and the things that they said to him. But this morning's encounter is Christ's encounter with Nicodemus. And this encounter this morning will bring up a topic that is probably one of the most important topics in the Bible, but more importantly in your life. And that is the topic of the new birth, born again. What does that mean? How do I become born again? And Jesus is going to explain to Nicodemus what all of that means. George Whitfield said this, As you have made such progress in investigating the mysteries of electricity, I now humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. It is a most important and interesting study, and when mastered, will richly repay you for your pains. In our story this morning, and when I say story, I don't mean fairy tale, I mean this narrative or this documented experience that Jesus had with this particular man. His name was Nicodemus. And it says, it's about one night Nicodemus went out to visit Jesus. But the furthest thing from Nicodemus's mind was what would result on that night, that fateful visit, and that men would be reading about this story for thousands of years, like we are this morning. This happened thousands of years ago. Nicodemus didn't know that we'd be reading about it thousands of years from now. Let's begin with verse 1, and it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And then in verse 10, you drop down, it says that he was a teacher of Israel. So this man, Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee, and he was a teacher. Now, what was a Pharisee? A Pharisee was a member of a religious party who were supporters and guardians of the word of the law. That is the word of God. And even though the Pharisees were right on, on many points of doctrine, they made one real bad mistake. They made religion an outward experience. This is a group that made salvation a thing of works. In other words, as long as I don't do the thing that God says don't do, I'm okay. Jesus took it further. He says, if I even think about it, I've sinned. So what, what Jesus is going to teach Nicodemus here is, is more than just an outward act that God doesn't like. It's the thought inwardly that we end up acting out, entertaining God, ungodly things is the sin. So these, these Pharisees were very much against Jesus. These religious leaders, they were, they were very much against Jesus. And they were basically more against Jesus than any other group and what Jesus taught. Nicodemus was also a teacher. And by profession, he was a teacher in the area of religion. He was very respected and he was very well known. 
But in the most important area of life, Nicodemus was the one who needed to be taught. And Jesus taught him plenty on that fateful night. Look at verse 2. It says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs or miracles that you do unless God is with him. Why would Nicodemus go to Jesus at night? Because you see, Jesus wouldn't be as busy teaching the massive crowds as he was during the daytime. But the real reason that this man came to talk to Jesus at night because he didn't want anybody to see him. He was afraid he'd be seen by his peers. Or maybe others that, like many today, are afraid to go to church. They don't want to talk about Jesus. They don't want to say, I'd like to read the Bible because they'd be teased. They'd be mocked. They'd be ridiculed. And so Nicodemus goes to talk to Jesus at night so he wouldn't be seen. And again, uh, he, he, he couldn't be or less likely to be ridiculed for talking to Christ. And then when, when Nicodemus sees Jesus, he calls him rabbi. Now, Nicodemus could have used a better name to call Jesus because Jesus was more than just a rabbi. But at least Nicodemus was being sincere because the name rabbi, it was a sign of respect. Rabbi was the term used to speak respectfully of a teacher in those days. There was a professional use of the term where it represented authority in religious circles. So it would have been saying he's the Nicodemus. It would have been like him saying that he knew that Jesus was a, a religious authority. But in this case, rabbi was just being courteous. It was just a name for being courteous. It was a term of genuine respect. He said to Jesus, we know that you're a teacher come from God because nobody could do the things that you do unless God was with him. Now, Nicodemus believes the way he does because of the signs, the miracles that Jesus was doing. But you see, Nicodemus, Nicodemus missed who Jesus really was, like most people. They just know the story about Christmas and Easter and what they've heard about you know, Jesus in the past. And, and, and that, that's all they know or what they see on TV, the History Channel or whatever they might be watching. That's all they know. But they really miss who Jesus truly was. The miracles show that Jesus was more than somebody that was sent from God to teach. Jesus was sent to this earth to save. Jesus was the promised Messiah. And Nicodemus should have known this because of the miracles and the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus didn't waste any time telling Nicodemus about the gospel. And his response to Nicodemus's probing was to immediately give some basic facts about the gospel. Jesus knew in his heart the real reason why Nicodemus came to him. So Jesus got right to the point, which is the matter of salvation. Look at verse 3. Let's read verse 3 and then we'll read verses 5 through 8. Verse 3 says, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I want you to look at this verse very carefully. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless, notice, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless a person is born again, they will never see heaven. These are Christ's words. 
They're not my words. They're not the church's words. They're not man's words. They're Jesus' words. And now let's look at verses 5 through 8. Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, as one is born, notice, of water and the Spirit. Notice, again, a second time, Jesus makes sure he understands this point. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The gospel describes salvation as a new birth, born again. First, because the new birth is a unique birth. To be born again, it is a distinctive, unique birth. It's a birth like no other. The earthly birth is when a baby is born from the water sack of the mother. Then there was the virgin birth, that first Christmas morning of of Christ by Mary. Then the birth that Jesus is talking about here is the spirit birth, which is the new birth when a person comes to Christ and is saved from their sins. It is a divine birth, is a birth of the spirit. And just like he said in in verses uh, 7 through 8, or verse 8, he says, you know, the wind blows. You can't see it, you can't hear it, but you can see the effect of it. It's just like the new birth. A person one day is, you know, doing their own thing. They're living their own life. They're walking and living in sin. And, you know, before you come to Christ, that is, you don't see it as sin. It's a normal part of, of your everyday life. It's no big deal. It is do what, I, I do what comes naturally when I'm not, you know, born again. But when somebody comes to Christ... That very next day, they have new thoughts, new desires, new ways. It's like, it's like, wow, how did, how did that happen? Again, you don't see the new birth take place physically. <clears throat> you see it happen spiritually in the person's life. There's evidence now of a new life. And that's what he means by the when the wind blows, you can't see it or you can't you know, necessarily see where, where it's coming from and what it's doing, but you can see the effects of it. You know, when it blows through a tree, you see the leaves and the, and the branches going back forth. You see the evidence of the, 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 the wind as it blows. And so this is, again, the, the illustration that Jesus uses with the new birth. It's what happens, what happens in the new birth, again, is it's something that the Holy Spirit does. And it's, it, when a person comes to Christ, like I say, they're saved. It's a divine birth, born of the Spirit. It is what happens to a person when Jesus changes their disposition by putting in a disposition like his own. Jesus comes into that life and he gives that life his own life. And that person becomes a new creature in Christ. My old life, my old desires, they're no longer, they've passed. And they have been replaced with a new life of of desires. That new life begins. If you leave out God, there is no new birth. If God is left out, then man thinks he can save himself by doing good things, by being good. And a lot of people think, well, you know, I've been a good person all my life. I don't kill. I don't steal. I don't do this. I I don't do that. I've been a good person. I have done good things. They think automatically they're going to heaven. Wrong. Being born again is the greatest life-changing experience you can ever have. The biggest change from this new birth is your eternal destiny, 
Now, in the new birth, you've gone from hell to heaven. Because apart from Jesus Christ, like he said, unless you're born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. You'll never enter the kingdom of God. Changes in this life, the new birth, the new life, are, are, are things like a new, are new desires, new values, new priorities, new hopes. Before I came to Christ, when I used to do those things, you know, I, I desired to drink, I desired to do drugs, I desired to do things that were, that were ungodly. But when I became born again, when I was born again, those desires left me because Christ gave me more wholesome desires, desires that were a lot better and more powerful than any drug or any drink. It's indescribable. But that's the new birth. It's the greatest life experience that you can ever have. And again, new hopes, new desires, a new will to live. The importance of the new birth is the same for everybody. Male, female, rich or poor, educated, uneducated, black or white, young or old, religious or atheist. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot, she cannot, they cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. It wasn't a suggestion. He said, you must. And this is Christ speaking. So this tells us that even a high religious position isn't isn't exempt from the need to be born again. Even if you're the Pope, he has to be born again if he's going to go to heaven. Doesn't matter if he's the Pope. Doesn't matter how fancy his clothing is and, and how wonderfully he speaks. It doesn't matter. If he's not born again, he's not going to heaven. And if you have a problem with that, you need to take it up with God. Jesus said, unless one, and that word one means anybody, any living creature is born again, he will not enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was like a lot of people. They didn't understand what was going on. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You see, Nicodemus missed what Jesus meant by the new birth like a lot of people do. I remember the first time Pastor Al told me he was born again. I go, what? Born again? Yeah, I got saved. Saved? Were you in an accident? No, I've been saved by the blood of Christ. And the the more he said, the more it went. I just, I couldn't understand it. Because I was a natural man. He was speaking about spiritual things. And you see, that's what happened to Nicodemus here. He was a religious man, but he didn't understand spiritual things. Just like a lot of people. And when they don't understand something, they mock it. And that's what I used to do. Oh, I used to say, yeah, he's gone off the deep end. He's finally gone nuts. And, you know, I just ridiculed everything that he said and did. Rather than trying to understand it, people mock it. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can this, how can these things be? He just didn't understand the new birth. He didn't understand the message at all that Jesus was giving him. And even though Nicodemus was an intelligent man and with a high religious position, he still didn't understand the new birth. And think of it, he was, he was a, doctor, a, a doctor of the law, if you will. He was authority in the Old Testament. He was authority in, uh, an authority of the word of God. And here he did not understand what Jesus was telling him. 
even though we make the message as crystal clear as we can, the heart, the heart of unbelief often doesn't understand it. And it takes more than a good argument to convince people about the gospel. It also takes the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart to help man to understand the gospel message that Jesus is giving here. Now, Jesus rebuked Nicodemus' ignorance. First, by, by saying, Nicodemus, a man in your position should know these things. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, you're a respected Jewish leader, and yet you do not understand these things? Nicodemus, you're a well-educated teacher. You're a well-respected teacher. You're in a high position as a teacher. Which really condemns him for not understanding the truth about the new birth. But again, spiritual ignorance is often found in intelligent people, even in high places. Nicodemus had a tremendous spiritual advantage, though, being an Israelite. Because as Paul said, that they have been given the oracles of God. The Jews were given the word of God. And yet with all of this privilege, he was still ignorant of the most important spiritual truth of all. And his position made his ignorance inexcusable. Now our country, the United States of America, is filled with spiritual opportunities and advantages like like no other country. We have churches everywhere. We have Bibles easily at our, easy at our access. We have conferences. We have retreats. We have, you know, we have so much where we can go and learn about God's will for mankind. Where we can learn these spiritual things. And even with this great privilege, that makes this country ripe for God's judgment. And I think when you see what's going on in our country today, I think you can see the hand of God's judgment reaching out to us now. Because we've rejected such a great light. Because God gave us such a great light in Jesus Christ. And then we have the Bible, we have churches, we have preachers, we have teachers. And yet we don't take advantage of it. Now, what was the cause of Nicodemus' ignorance? Look at verse 11. He told him, you do not receive our witness. In other words, Jesus said, Nicodemus, you don't receive, you don't believe what we and the disciples and others, you know, that have, that have been born again, you're not receiving it. You're not believing it. They rejected the truth, which was the cause of his spiritual ignorance. And he rejected the truth, even though it came from the best source possible, and that is Jesus Christ. Here, Jesus personally is telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. But he wasn't having it. It wasn't like Nicodemus was getting this message from a crazy man. He was getting it from the highest source possible. And likewise, to reject the gospel message, the one that's being heard this morning, is to disbelieve the Bible, which is the most reliable witness of all. You reject truth from a reliable source, and ignorance will be the result all the time. Look what Jesus said to him in verse 12. If you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things. 
Basically, Jesus told Nicodemus, if you don't believe basic spiritual truth, it will make you ignorant of further spiritual truth. How do you remove spiritual ignorance? It comes by knowing Christ. Jesus gives some significant facts about himself here. First, he tells Nicodemus about his position. Look at verse 13. Notice what it says. He tells Nicodemus, No one has ascended to heaven, or no one has gone to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, and that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. This is a heavy statement that Jesus is giving Nicodemus here. Ascending up to heaven here means to be in the higher associations and throne with God himself. He's saying, I've, I'm, I'm, I've been in heaven. I've been with God. What Jesus says here is that he is without a doubt qualified to speak about heavenly things because he came from heaven. Because he's been a part of heavenly relationships. So that makes him an excellent witness. Secondly, it speaks of the pre-existence of Christ. In verse 13 says, the Son of Man, it's a, it's a title that's used of Christ, the Son of Man has come down from heaven. Now coming down from heaven says Jesus already existed before he came to earth. Now understand, Jesus never had a beginning, he's never going to have an end. When he was born of the Virgin Mary, that wasn't when he first came into existence. Jesus has been, always will be. He has no beginning, he has no end, because he's God. But he came to this earth through the miracle of the new birth. So again, he came down from heaven. He existed before he came to earth. This statement emphasizes his deity. He's God. And the third thing he said in verse 13, again, the title, the Son of Man, this title, which is used some 88 times in the New Testament for Jesus, it speaks of his Messiahship. Jesus is the Messiah. It's a term that emphasizes Christ's humanity because it was in his humanity that he could come down and claim the throne of David as king of Israel. So this position of Jesus Christ is much higher than what Nicodemus gave him credit for. And lastly, he came from heaven. The presence of Christ from heaven. This is a great statement because it says that Jesus was in heaven even as he spoke to Nicodemus on earth because he's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. Speaks of his omnipresent. This makes him more than a teacher come from God, as Nicodemus said in verse 2, as Nicodemus thought. But rather, it makes Jesus God who came to teach. Look at verse 14 and 15 now. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him, notice, should not perish, but have eternal life. What Jesus does here is gives a simple picture of the gospel by using the example of Moses lifting up the serpent on a pole in the wilderness to stop the plague of death that had come upon the people. We have the story in Numbers 21, 4 through 9. And because Nicodemus being a, a custodian and a protector of the Old Testament word, he was familiar with this story about sin because the nation rebelled against God and they had to be punished. So what did God do? He sent these fiery serpents, these snakes that bit the people, and many of them died. 
But it's also a story of grace. Because Moses prayed for the people, he interceded for people, and God provided a cure for them. God told Moses, look, make a brass serpent. In other words, make a, make a, a replica of these serpents that are binding the people. Make, a, 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 make it out of brass. Put it on the top of a pole. And then he said, lift up that pole for all to see. Any person who looked at the serpent would be healed immediately. And if you ever, if you notice, if you don't notice, or if you ha- don't know, and when you look at the doctor or nurse's lapel, they have that little serpent on the pole. That's what this is. That's where they got that from. Because as you, you lift it, they're, they're a picture of healing. They're a picture of, of helping people to, to get better. And Jesus to, and God told Moses, hold that serpent up on a pole, and all who look at the serpent will be healed. They'll be saved. And so you see, it's, all, it's a story of faith as well, because when the people looked by faith at the pole, they were saved. So when you look to Christ by faith, you will be saved. That's the illustration that Jesus, that, that Jesus used here for Nicodemus to help him understand the gospel message. The verb lifted up, when it says that, that, that you know, when Jesus would be lifted up, it has a double meaning. The word lifted up means to be crucified and to be glorified and exalted. So in John's gospel, John points out that our Lord's crucifixion was actually the means of his glorification. The cross wasn't the end of his glory. It was the means of his glory. Just like the serpent was lifted up on that pole, so would the Son of God be lifted up on the cross. Why? To save us from sin, death, and hell. In the camp of Israel, the solution for getting rid of the fiery serpents wasn't to kill the serpents. It wasn't for a bunch of people to go out and kill the snakes. Oh, that'll fix things. It wasn't to make an antidote for the snake bites. It wasn't pretending they weren't there. It wasn't passing anti-serpent laws. It wasn't climbing up on the pole. The answer was by looking, at, was looking by faith at the uplifted servant. It's the same with Christ. You want to be saved from, 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 from uh, sin and hell? You have to look to him by faith. It's not finding an antidote. It's not pretending that, that this doesn't exist. It's not passing anti-serpent laws or, or you know, uh, looking at, at other ways to get to heaven. Because those are the things, you see, those are the things that man does. Man, man could do those things. Only God can save a soul. The answer is looking by faith at the uplifted Savior. Verse 16. Here we see in verse 16 the inspiration, the reason for what God did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is probably one of the best known scriptures in all the Bible. This is the inspiration. This was why God did what he did. For God so loved the world. Think about it. God so loved humanity that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, notice whosoever, that's an open invitation. It's for anybody who wants to come. Whosoever believes in him. When I say believe, now understand, believe doesn't mean an intellectual assent or agreement. Yeah, I, I believe in Christ. Yeah, I remember the Christmas story in Easter. And I, I heard, I, I know the history and, and I believe there was a Christ. No, the word believes means obey. 
Whoever believes in, whoever obeys him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, it was God's love. It was God's love that was the wonderful inspiration for the gospel. This verse, John 3.16, on God's love, is one that many think is the greatest verse in all the Bible. Matthew Henry said this about John 3.16. He said, here is the gospel, truly good news. That's what gospel means. It means good news. The best that ever came from heaven to earth. Here is much, here is all in a little, the word of reconciliation in miniature. God so loved the world. Now, in the Greek, the word translated so has several meanings. One meaning is in this manner. So you can say God loved the world in this manner or in the way described. God loved the world in the way described. And when you look at the cross, you see how God loved the world. This tells us that God's love is patterned after the image that Jesus had just given Nicodemus about the bronze serpents being lifted up on the pole for the healing of the rebellious Israelites. In other words, in, my, in spite of man's sin, God's love provided a remedy for the Israelites. Likewise, in spite of our sin, God's love provided a remedy for us. Jesus gave his life on the cross for us. Even when we didn't want him. And even for those who still don't want him, Christ died for them because he loves them. Another meaning of the word translated so involves intensity, and it means so greatly. God so loved the world. He so greatly loved the world. How many times in a text, maybe you texted somebody and, and you wrote, you went to see a movie and you said, oh, it's so good, and you put S-O-O-O-O-O-O. You were, you were so, you were speaking of the intensity. You were speaking of how great it was. You were speaking of, of, of uh, it, it was just the best. That's what that little word so says when it says God so loved the world that he gave. Loving is giving. Loving is giving. The word love being past tense. It says so loved. Like, well, he, he passed tense. The word love being past tense doesn't mean God loved us after we became his children. After we've been redeemed. It says God loved us before we were redeemed. Even when we were at our worst. God loved us. Past tense doesn't mean he doesn't love us now. His love is also present tense. Which means it's always abiding. It's always with us. There's nothing that you can do. That would cause God not to love you. Or to love you less. And understand, God doesn't love us because we're lovable, because we're good. No, God doesn't love us because of what we are now. He loves us because of what he is. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. That's the nature of God. He can't help but love because that's who he is. Who's, who's, who's is God's love available to? He said, for God to so love the world. God's love is available to the whole world. God's love isn't just for a few people or to one group of people, but his gift is for the whole world. God's love was shown to us in the giving of his most priceless gift, his unique son. 
Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, he, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Notice, everyone. 1 John 2.2, And he himself is the, prop, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Because you see, there are some who will tell you, and even have made a doctrine that says, you know what, God didn't die for everybody. And some are appointed to hell and some are appointed to heaven. What kind of God is that? How could God so love the world if he said, okay, certain people are appointed to hell? It's not the nature of God. And I just read you two scriptures that that support, you know, that don't support that doctrine. It said, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Jesus died for the whole world. No love has ever loved so many, the whole world. You know, we think a lot of times, well, you know, if I love a few of my neighbors and I love my relatives and my friends and, you know, most of my family, I'm a pretty good person. We're just filled with love. We're just lovey-dovey. But compared to the height and the depth and the width of God's love, we haven't even begun to love. Because I can turn my water on and off like a faucet. Be mean to me, and we'll see how far my love goes. Be nice to me, I can love you to death. That's what people do. But Paul said that, that God demonstrated his love to us while we were yet sinners. In other words, even before I came to Christ, when I was out there doing all of that junk in the world, God was loving me. He loved me then. And he doesn't love me any more now than since I've come to Christ than he did then. He didn't love me any less then than he loves me now. He's not a man. Like I said, he loves me all the time the same. There's nothing I can do that can diminish his love for me. And there's nothing more that I can do that will make him love me more. The Greek word translated only, that he gave his only begotten son. The word only referring to his son means only begotten or only born. On man's side, on our side, the gift of Christ is simply to be received. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't work for it. You can't. There's nothing that you can do for the, for the gift of eternal life, but receive it. We just got over Christmas and, and, and you gave gifts, you received gifts. What do you do with a gift? You receive it. The gifts that you got, you say, oh, let me pay you for that. Oh, let me earn that gift that you're giving me. No, you receive it. And that's what you do with the gift of Jesus Christ. You receive it. And John 1, 12 says, John said that, that those who receive him, God gives them the authority to become sons and daughters of God. You see, he must be received. You can't buy salvation. You can't earn salvation. It's received. So on man's side, the gift is simply to be received, not earned. A person is saved by believing and trusting in Christ. What is the assurance that we have when we believe in Christ and we come to him? That you should not perish. Now, the word perish doesn't mean annihilation like a lot of people think, that once you die, that's it, it's over. No, it means 
a final destiny of ruin in hell apart from God. God who is life, truth, and joy. That's what it means to perish. If you perish without Christ, that is not being born again, you, you, you perish to a final destiny of ruin in hell apart from God who is life, truth, and joy. Eternal life, you see, is a new quality of life which a believer has now as a present possession and he'll possess it forever, for eternity. And that's a long, long time. Because love protects the one that they love. And the protection here, the protection spoken of here is spiritual protection. This is the protection that we need the most. People are interested in protection. We all are interested in protection. We see that by the insurance that we take out on our car, our house, you know, our, our, our whatever else is precious to us. But what about afterlife? Do I have spiritual protection on where I'm going to spend eternity? Only Jesus Christ can give you that, that protection. He, God protects us forever once we receive and abide His love gift. He protects us forever once we receive and abide. That means to stay in Christ. This protection will never expire. What is the provision of God's love? Everlasting love. For God so loved the world... That whoever, whoever receives him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God's love gives the one loved a great gift. It's everlasting life. This is the greatest gift anybody can have. Abundant life, eternal life. This life is more abundant than anything the world can offer us. This is the greatest life of all. What's the duration of the provision? Everlasting. Everlasting. Many things in life are temporary, and they don't last. And that's why people go from experience to experience to experience, trying to find that one thing that is going to make them happy. Many things in life are temporal. They don't last. Many things that we buy in the stores, they have warranties on them. But the warranties are all limited. Usually 90 days, that seems to be a popular warranty on, on items. But God's warranty for salvation is, is eternal. It's forever. What company do you know that can put that kind of a warranty on their product? God did. It's everlasting. Listen to John chapter 10, verse 27 through 28. And this is important. You believers, make a note of it. Because usually when they say about your security in Christ, they use, they'll just teach John 10, 28. And it'll say, I, I give them eternal life and they will perish and no one can snatch them away from me. But understand, verse 27 goes with verse 28. Because there's a certain con condition. There is a certain group of those that won't perish. And when I say that, now I mean it's picked out. It's, it's for all, but there's a condition. Jesus said, notice, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them. All right? He's speaking now to this group of people. He says, my sheep listen to my voice and I know them. Now, if you remember in Matthew 7, 23, when they said, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We did this in your name. We did this in your name. Claiming that they knew him. He said, I didn't know you. 
I didn't know you. And yet they claim to be Christians. Lord, we did this and that in your name. We blah, blah, you know, we blah, and they went on and on and on and on. He says, I don't know you. What's the difference between that group there and this group here? He says, they listen to my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. Whoa. The word follow means to be in the same way with. So Jesus says, my sheep are the ones who listen to my voice. I know those who listen to me. They follow me. He says, I give them eternal life. Notice, he specifies who it is who has security in Christ. It is those who listen to me and follow me. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one can snatch them away from my hand. Five times the pronoun, they and them. He is speaking to, a, 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 to, to people who do one thing. They listen to the voice of God and they follow him. You see, it's not to, that anybody who just thinks because they go to church or they have good thoughts about God or they like the Bible. No, it goes beyond that. Do you listen to what he has to say? And how does he speak? Through this. This is how he speaks to us. And do you follow him? Do you follow what he says? He says, those are the ones that shall never perish. What is the proof of God's love? He says, for God so loved the world that he gave. Loving is giving. True love gives. God's love wasn't just words. It was also works. It was deeds that he gave his son on Calvary's cross for our sins. A person can give and not love, but one cannot love and not give. One of the first signs of love in a courtship is the giving of gifts. And guys, you probably remember, you couldn't wait to, you know, when that, that, that woman that you knew that was going to be the one, you gave her gifts. She's going, what happened? Where are the gifts? No. <laughs> But we gave gifts when we first fell in love. It was a sign of love. The offering plate, service, all those things are, are a sign of our love, you know, when, when, when it comes to, to, to showing Christ our love. It's more than just talk. And then in verses 17 through 21, involving Nicodemus and Jesus, he gives us some insight. Jesus gives us some insight that comes from the gospel. Look at verse 17. Now he tells us here, Jesus tells us why God came to the earth. For God did not send his son. In other words, Jesus wasn't sent by the father into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to condemn the world. But that through, the, that through him, the world might be saved. This speaks of the incarnation of Christ. That means him coming in the flesh. God was the one who sent his son into the world. In verse 16, it reads, God gave his son. Here, it says God sent his son. The word gave speaks of Christ's coming in relationship to man. He came 
He gave because we needed him. So the word gave speaks of Christ coming in relation to man. And sent speaks of Christ coming in relationship to God the Father. Jesus told people more than once that he was in the world because he was sent here by his heavenly Father. Why did he come? He wasn't sent to condemn the world, but to save the world through himself. By salvation of man's soul, he was sent into the world for the sole purpose of saving us because we were already condemned. Verse 18. You are either in one or, 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 or uh, one, one of two categories. Verse 18 says, He who believes in me, notice, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Faith in Christ or lack of it determines whether or not you're you're not condemned or you're condemned already. And it's important for you to understand there is no other position that you can take. You are either not condemned this morning or you are condemned already. It all depends on where you stand with Jesus Christ. These two positions deal with our eternal standing before God. Those who do not believe in Jesus Christ will be condemned. Those who believe in Christ will not be condemned. Verse 19, Jesus gives the reason for the condemnation. Look at verse 9. And this is the condemnation, notice, that the light has come into the world, speaking of Christ, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Jesus severely condemns mankind here. First of all, because God loved them so much. And light came into the world. And this speaks of Christ coming into the world. And no greater love was ever given to show, show, that was shown to mankind than Jesus coming into the world to save them. That's why the condemnation of mankind is so great. Because they rejected so great a love. Because they despised the greatest divine love ever given to man. Secondly, the reason for man's condemnation is because of man's love for evil. Notice he said there uh, in verse 19, men love darkness rather than light. In other words, men love sin more than they love righteousness. This love of evil is because their deeds were evil. Sin produces sin. When you do evil, you'll love evil and not righteousness because, again, this love for evil greatly condemns mankind. Again, the third reason for the condemnation, it says, notice, their deeds were evil. The filthiness of men. Man has lived a filthy life because he has not lived according to God's standards, and this condemns man too. And then verse 20. He said, for everyone practicing evil, notice, hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Everyone practicing evil, and there's a lot of evil being practiced in this world today. All you have to do is look at the things that are going on. They practice evil because they don't come to the light, Christ. Why doesn't he want to come to the light? Because his deeds, his evil deeds will be exposed. Evil men are not in love with Jesus Christ. Some say they love Jesus. A lot of people say they love Jesus, but look at their life. Their life proves that what they say isn't true. Those who love darkness certainly don't love the light. They avoid the light. They refuse to go near the light. Why? Because they're afraid their sins will be exposed. Let's look at verse 21 as we close. 
The righteous, on the other hand, Jesus said, he who does the truth, notice, he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. The righteous comes to the light. Notice, where a person goes shows where their affections are. The places people go show where their affections are. Those who receive Christ's love, they love the light. So they love, because they love the light, because they love Christ, they love the word of God, they love church, and and all the things that are holy. Righteous people come to the light, Jesus said, so others can see that they are doing what God wants. Now, evil men avoid the light, so people won't see what the evil things are that they're doing. But good people seek the light to show their character. Now, they're they're not showing their character for everybody to see. They're not coming to the light to show how, oh, look at me, how wonderful, how godly, how holy I am. No, they don't come to the light to get praised by men. That's not what the verse means here. It means they come to the light so that they may be approved by God. A final note is Nicodemus finally did get saved. He came to Christ here at the beginning to find out more about what Jesus had to say and had to teach. But when you get to John 19, you see that Nicodemus did finally come to Christ and he became a born-again believer because he identified with Jesus Christ at the cross. John realized that the uplifted Savior, the one who hung on the cross and died for our sins, without a doubt, was the Son of God. Father, we thank you for this great message, Lord, in your word. Father, we thank you for sending your Son. And Jesus, we thank you that you came. And Father, we pray now that your Holy Spirit would teach us more about Christ and the new birth here. That the Spirit of God has open hearts and open ears and open minds to understand the gospel. And now, now that we've heard the gospel of Christ, now it's time to make a decision for Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and and maybe it's the first time that you've ever heard the gospel presented like this. And the first time you ever heard that without Christ, I'll never see the kingdom of God. I'll never enter the kingdom of God. That my religion and my good works and my, my, my good personality and, and, and all of those things is not good enough to get me into the kingdom of God. Without Christ, Jesus said, I am condemned. I'm condemned already. But with him, I am not condemned. I must be born again. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And this time is for you. We pray that the gospel message has touched your heart. And the Holy Spirit has given you discernment and and, and an awakening. As we worship... If you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you get up out of your seat. You make your way to the steps up front. I'll meet you there. 
And when the song is over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith. 